Welcome to the Queer Q. Today we're joined with artist and filmmaker Chris Vargas. And you know, Vargas has worked on films such as Homotopia, Criminal Queers, and I think a, a web series called Falling in Love with Chris and Greg as well. And both of in both your art and your video work, you look at, you know, queer and trans spaces and the intersection of history and culture. Um, so kind of tell um, our listeners and tell us like what is your inspiration in creating these art pieces and you know like how did your creative journey begin and how does that intersect with your own queer identity those are big questions thank you yeah. thanks for having me by the way um uh my inspiration comes from my community really um i found myself uh, connecting with a lot of artists early on, a lot of interesting people, politically minded people, activists, but who are artists as well. And um, my inspiration is really them. I think I began to make work because I saw, I'm a late bloomer, I think. Um, I didn't, I've always been creative, but um, I don't feel like I really started to come into my own until much later. Um, developmentally relative to my peers. And um, my inspiration is like talking back through my own work to some of the political ideas my community um, is in dialogue with, or I'm in dialogue with in my community. Um, so that really comes from my inspiration. And of course my community is queer and trans. And um, so that's, you know, inevitably going to show up in my work. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, we've seen it throughout, you know, before Homotopia, you know, you worked on this really cool Super 8 style film called Road Rash, and um, you were able to really document, you know, the first like, quote unquote, man pregnancy that was sensationalized, you know, in the news. And, you know, that was in Extraordinary Pregnancies. So what was it like working on this? What drew you to those projects? And did those really inspire you to move forward to Homotopia? Yeah, Road Rash was actually the first film I ever made. And I made it when I was a student at Los Angeles Community College. Um, and the assignment was make a, a chase scene. And that could be, you could, that could be interpreted in however anybody wanted to interpret it. So I made that um, with some friends in a desolate side street in industrial downtown Los Angeles. And um, it was a time where, and I, I think I was thinking, I was coming into a trans identity and a trans identification, starting to have the language to describe that. And, um, it's the film is silly. It's a silly uh, bike versus motorcycle chase scene. And it's also kind of a butch versus trans masculine. So it's sort of a funny or a playful take on this silly, unnecessary debate, you know, within queer and trans and trans masculine spaces about, you know, butch versus trans masculine. Um, and yeah, um, it was really fun. It was shot in a day. I 
developed it and actually hand cut it, um, spliced it together in a little editing bed. And that was really, really fun. But that really set me on the course because it was silent and I um, was able to screen it in a lot of different film festivals. First at Outfest in Los Angeles, um, the LGBT film festival. And then, you know, once you're in a film festival, every other film festival, especially Outfest, uh, wants to see or wants to consider one's work for inclusion in their festival. So that film, my first, actually circulated a lot just for such a simple uh, little class project. Um, it had a it had a long life, and then um, yeah, that um, made me realize I wanted to do something related to film. And then I um, transferred from LA Community College to UC Santa Cruz and and studied film and digital media there. And yeah, that was that's history, I guess. Um, that's where it started. And yeah, I made a bunch of little films short films, long films after that. So that leads up to homotopia, correct? And, you know, when you're talking about with Road Rash, how you're kind of making this funny critique on the butch and um, trans masculine scene, I, you do the same thing in homotopia where you kind of make a critique on also homonormativity and, you know, gay marriage. So, you know, what was the impetus to making um, Homotopia and this message that you wanted to get across? How was this different from, you know, all the little shorts you made in community college and UC Santa Cruz to um, making Homotopia? Um, Homotopia actually was another student film. <laughs> so that was my thesis or my final work um, in the program at UC Santa Cruz. And actually, it came out of that. It wasn't exactly that. Um, it was, it's, Homotopia is an expanded version of a project I made there. Um, and yeah, it was like Road Rash is sort of a funny critique of the like uh, trans masculine butch border wars, right? Um, homotopia is a kind of silly um, wedding crashing intervention on um, gay, a gay marriage, a gay wedding. And it was mine and my collaborator, Eric Stanley's um, attempt at engaging with um, the right to marry movement, which we saw at the moment or at that time really eclipsing all other kind of um, activist struggles. Um, you know, the critique of marriage has long and deep feminist roots, feminist uh, woman of color roots. And we wanted to highlight that um, because you know, us as people who didn't necessarily want to have normative relationship arrangements, right? You, you, you said homonormativity, like we didn't kind of see that for our own path. So marriage wasn't something that we aspired to. Therefore, you know, the rights associated with wouldn't have necessarily been granted to us had we won inclusion. So we wanted to, um, just bring out that that critique or that conversation because it just felt missing. Um, any kind of capitalist critique, any kind of um, any sort of activism related to trans people, people of color, people who are poor, mentally um, and physically disabled, like these issues that impact the queer community in a huge way, just we're like gone with the right to marry movement. So um, it's our modest 
attempt at intervening, you know, on this, this fervor that we saw around us. Yeah, you know, I definitely remember that because we had so many intersectional issues that we have to deal with that we're still dealing with within the queer community and everything was lumped together under right to marriage. And there were so many other abolitionist advocacy efforts that needed to be done. And so in follow-up to homotopia, you get into criminal queers and you follow, you know, this radical group, but you look at the prison industrial complex, which, you know, when we're talking about abolition and advocacy, it's a huge, huge topic that we see where trans women of color and, um, a lot of queer sex workers, you know, they are just unjustly imprisoned. And so it was such a vital thing to be able to watch, you know, and I think what we would love to know is, you know, what challenges did you come across when you were making criminal queers? Um, and do you believe that, you know, the, the themes and underlying messages that abolition and advocacy that is so well conveyed in criminal queers, do, do you think that that really ties into what's going on in the country today with all of the anti-LGBTQ, especially anti-trans legislature that we have just moving nationwide? Definitely. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, so first of all criminal queers the challenges in making were many um it was really a grassroots homegrown kind of project it took us almost 10 years to make um but we did it because and, and we did it happily alongside a, a lot of other projects um so it was not a struggle in that way it was a really community-based project really highly collaborative and um, yeah, the film itself came out of, you know, activist struggles that Eric and I and our community were involved in. Um, Eric and I and many people um, were involved in all kinds of um, campaigns and groups connected to prison abolition, including critical resistance in the Bay Area, um, transforming justice, which was an awesome convening of all these prison abolitionists, trans women of color led groups um, that was back in like 2000. Uh, um, God, I have to write this down. Um, 2007 or eight or something. Yeah, I'm like, how long ago was that? Um, and yeah, I mean, Criminal Queers is really, it came out of uh, a lot of people's response to homotopia, right? So a lot of people were like, okay, then what, if we're not gonna struggle for marriage, if this isn't the issue that is going to save us all, right? Like you alluded to, like all the rights afforded to people, like people were putting that forth as like, this is gonna be a success for all, but like, why, why? is healthcare, why is immigration status, why are all these things connected to marriage? Why aren't they just a human right? So um, people were like, well, then what, if not marriage, what then? So we're like, well, yeah, the prison industrial complex disproportionately targets all kinds of, you know, the most vulnerable within our queer community, trans women of color, sex workers, poor people, um, mentally, Ill. like just it's, it's, if, we're going to struggle for anything. Why don't we struggle for 
the thing that impacts the most marginalized among us. So um, yeah, the, the film really came out of our politics or our political organizing outside of the film. So, right, that's informing the politics of the film. And um, at the time, people were like, you know, abolition was out there because critical resistance, um, a big um, organization based in the Bay Area that um, was, you know, at the fore of this movement um, had been around by the time I got to them, like a little, almost 10 years. So it's not like this idea was totally new, but it just wasn't as widespread as it was today. It's so exciting to see these politics really get a lot, a bigger platform and people understanding the impact of the, our criminal, our totally broken criminal, I mean, actually it's totally working criminal justice system and that it's targeting, you know, it's, it's racist roots are deep and well-documented. Um, um, I'm rambling, but <laughs> it's so great to see that this conversation is getting a lot of, uh, a lot more visibility. Um, also the difficulty of it, right? It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to grapple with, right? It's a lot of people concerned with, if not this, then what's in its place, you know? And then that inspires important conversations about what we need, what people need to live, to survive and be happy. And um, so, it's difficult work and I think it's important work, but um, back to the film, again, like our modest intervention, our modest um, attempt at trying to disperse these politics, this having have this conversation more broadly. And it's a funny film um, because Eric and I, or it's funny, it's light, it's totally campy. Um, it's a prison break film. It uses that kind of genre. Um, but we did that intentionally because, you know, there's so many ways to have this conversation. And so we were like, why not do it in a way that actually we feel connected to, which is funny and pleasurable and fun and so queer and DIY and um, totally grown out of a community that we love and um, feel connected to. What I love about criminal queers and homotopia is that you bring this lightheartedness and you know funny aspect to it and you know that again like you talk about um bringing like a community into your work and you know looking at uh the queer community when creating a project and you do the same i think uh in another big collaboration project with uh, michelle tease valencia and in that one, it's also your piece. We love, Nick and I, when we were watching it, we loved your section. It was hilarious. And so we wanted to know what was that like on working on such a huge, like collaborative, like queer film with I think over 20 directors. And it also like, why did you choose that particular ex excerpt if you were able to choose that excerpt? I don't think, well, my collaborator and I, Greg Yeomans, who I made the, web series with back in the day, falling in love with Chris and Greg. Um, I don't think we got a choice, <laughs> honestly. We were late comers to it. I think somebody dropped out or didn't commit and then we were assigned um, a uh, chapter and um, which was totally fine. It was such an honor to be included in that project because I had 
admired Michelle T's work and I loved Valencia. I had been living in, I think, New York when I read it. And I was like, oh my God, I need to get back to California. Fuck New York. <laughs> Not really, but I was like, oh my God, California. I, I mean, this is like, I feel so excited. This, the document of a community that I was like, oh my God, I need to be there. But anyway, um, um, yeah, it, it came about because yeah, Greg and I, we're at the right place at the right time. Michelle's like, you want to do this project? And I think, I don't know where we were in terms of our own creative development, but we were clearly interested in found footage um, because we cast, everybody was doing interesting things in terms of casting the main character, Michelle. And we're like, who would we, if we were in the nineties making this film, who would we cast? And um, I think we were like, well, Angelina Jolie, of course, because she had all of these like iconic early like queer roles, like uh, Gia and Foxfire and all, just she was iconic um, in the 90s. Um, and we we're like, oh, we would definitely cast Angelina Jolie. So then why don't we think about those films that we love from Angelina Jolie in the 90s and then remake, re like cut them, revoice them to make it work for the Valencia chapter that we were assigned. Yeah, I personally loved the girl interrupted scene. I thought it was absolutely hilarious, especially with the line, like, you know, I used to date her. Just the reactions were perfect and it just lined up perfectly. It was something that really inspired both of us, actually. You know, we just love the concept so much. Um, but, you know, we, besides, filmmaking, you know, you do so much more, you know, because you're the founder of the Museum of Transgender History Art, um, also known as um, MAFA. Um, so can you tell us about that project and the creation of this museum? Sure. Um, yeah, I started it in 2013 and I had, and it came out of video making really. Um, I had made a series of videos like the one you talked about extraordinary pregnancies about Thomas Beatty. Um, and it was, uh, I, I was working in this way where I was really delving into queer biography and trans biography. And so yeah, Thomas Beatty, Liberace, uh, Reed Erickson, who was the uh, early uh, funder of the One um, Institute in Los Angeles, one of the early gay homophile organizations that's now a big LGBT archive. Uh, Reed Erickson was this totally eccentric funder. He funded a lot of interesting trans uh, social service and medical kind of studies and support um, organizations. And yeah, so I was in my video work, I was kind of doing that research. Um, and then I was, I thought to myself, like, I think I wanted something bigger. I wanted to like sink my teeth into a large ongoing project. I had just um, graduated with my MFA. Um, and yeah, I was just looking for something big. So I was like, well, hmm. 2013 was an interesting time. It was a moment, it was like the kind of early swell. It was be the beginning of the swell of trans visibility and lots of different uh, institutions or platforms like, like art museums, academia, uh, right, one of the first, um, trans studies programs and the one in University of Arizona was just starting. Um, there was some visibility on cable 
network cable TV, like Orange is the New Black with Laverne Cox. So it was this moment where like, oh, all of a sudden trans was like getting more visibility than I had seen in my lifetime. Come to find out, you know, this is not new. <laughs> um, but I mean, it is, looks different, but you know, media fascination with trans stuff is not new. But so I was like, okay. So that intersected with uh, my wanting to start a big project intersected with, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art um, had closed for renovation for five years and they were doing all of this virtual offsite programming, right? This is nothing new now that we've, uh, we've like gone through COVID and every institution started doing that. But at the time it felt like, huh, like if you can have a museum that didn't actually have a place, like why can't I do the same? Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to think about making this like immaterial museum. And I did it by making a poster with collaged of all these different trans icons, whether or not they were trans, it didn't matter. Um, so I, I made this poster. It took a year. It was like a fun kind of cut and paste Photoshop project, but I didn't think I was going to do much besides like just plant the seed of like, this is Motha, this is the Museum of Trans History and Art coming soon forever. And then put it out there and then people could imagine what this museum is. And that would be, and that was more interesting to me for people to imagine what this place would be rather than to actually make it. But then I was like, okay, I could still have it live in this immaterial state, but then also do projects under it. So then, yeah, so then I started making lots of different things. Um, lots of more, more poster graphics of, of a quote unquote virtual residency because my friend Tuesday wanted a, a line in her CV that said she did a residency somewhere even though she didn't. Um, and um, yeah, so I used it to, to think about that process of assimilation of trans identity, trans narrative into these institutions, what, what's gained and what's lost by that process. Um, and just to think about what museums do, how they function in terms of granting legitima legitimacy to you know, historically marginalized groups. Um, so yeah, that's how Motha came out. And then the, the his, because Motha is sort of a parody of museums, um, at its heart, um, I saw that the Smithsonian had done this project called the History of the U.S. in 101 Objects, which was inspired by the British Museum's history of 100 objects. So I was like, I'm a museum. I could do that related to trans history because I'm already thinking about trans history, so why not? And then, so then that's how the exhibitions uh, series Trans History and 99 Objects came about. Yeah, I absolutely love that concept, especially of uh, making an immaterial museum. Um, do you have any more kind of projects or plans or ideas that you would like to share from Martha and any future exhibitions that you want to tease right now with it? Ooh, yeah. Well, I'm done with the exhibitions. Um, now I'm working on the book. So the original inspiration for that series was the book um, that the Smithsonian, the British Museum put out. So yeah, now I'm hard at work with that. I have um, a couple collaborators, some co-editors that are helping me. Um, assemble the 99 objects, but it's a mix of contemporary trans art that engages with trans history. It's also includes archival objects in, you know, that have 
historical significance and point to very specific things related to trans history. And, um, and then there's things that are totally lost to history that um, have to be fabricated or are pointed to in some way. So I'm still in the process of figuring out how those those kinds of things are going to be included. But yeah, that book, <laughs> it's a far off dream or it's a far off plan, but um, it's going to ideally coin its launch will coincide with the with Martha's 10th anniversary in June 2023. So look out for that. Put it in your calendar. <laughs> well, we can't wait. I know that we're very much looking forward to it and we love revisionist history. So if you have to place in some people who would have existed, but unfortunately their history was erased, I say that is the best way to do it because there's the truth within that. Um, so this is like, you know, as we wrap up, you know, we always like to ask a really fun question. Um, and so we want to know if you're given an endless supply, you know, of funds, resources, you know, people behind you working, you know, what would you like to create? What kind of art would you like to create that you're, um, that, you know, is like a pipeline dream, something that you're not working on currently? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, my first thought was like, I'm just going to take vacations. <laughs> but then I was like, you know what? Part of um, the Motha stuff was like helping other, giving other people opportunities, like asking other people to collaborate and be, um, to exhibit in the museums that I'm invited to exhibit in as this project. I would find a way to like make a grant and give out money or um, give money out for trans artists to go on vacation. Like I think those these kind of material resources are so helpful in the early days of people's career and I know they were so significant in my the early days just the little bits of money I got early on was like whoa okay this opens up some possibilities and opens up some my imagination so I think I would I would give it away I mean okay I would keep some administrative fee <laughs> but then I would like look to look to create some sort of grant no, I love yeah. that, especially like, you know, giving back to the community and giving back to the arts. So, you know, as we're finishing, we would like you to let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can support you, um, how they can help give back to the community and any final last words you would like to give out to queer and trans artists and individuals in general as your final last message. Okay. Well, you can find me um, lazily on Instagram, Motha, Ma M underscore O underscore, all underscores between the letters Motha, M-O-T-H-A, um, or Chris E. Vargas at, uh, uh, is across all platforms, though, again, I'm lazy, I'm not, and or avoidant, but also for my mental health. <laughs> not very much on these platforms. Um, my website's christyvargas.com or matha.net. Um, you can look at past projects, um, archived projects, buy posters. Um, and oh, my last message would be um, continue making art. Um, it's really opened up so many important connections and so many different ways of thinking for me, um, connected to me to so many wonderful people. Um, immersing in my arts community is just the most important thing 
especially right now coming out of isolation for so long that I would say continue making work. It'll find its, you'll find its place. Mm -hmm.